Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. Okay, a little bit different of an episode we have for you today. We have hit the official six-month mark on the show, closing in on just about 50 episodes. And we decided it might be an opportune time to highlight some of my favorite personal moments from each of these episodes. Now, it's really hard to pick out the best moments from the past six months. There's so many amazing guests that I've had the opportunity to interview, and I am forever grateful to everyone who has hopped on the show with me, let me pick their brain for an hour, or tuned in as a listener or subscribed. But I hope that the following segments do a good job of encapsulating the amazing and brilliant people that I've been lucky enough to interview. Stepping back a bit, I also think the future for Chicago has never looked brighter. 2021, I think, has been a breakout year. We've had 10 unicorns minted thus far. The first half of 2021 set a record in terms of fundraising. Startups in Chicago raised around as much in Q2 as they did in all of 2019. I think for me personally, the sectors that I'm most interested in watching over the next couple of years are going to be logistics and transportation. I think there's a lot of interesting things happening in the real estate space. I think fintech, obviously, this is just such a hub for financial services, trading, financial markets, probably only rivaled by New York City and food tech. I think we've seen a number of exciting exits and funding rounds go towards Chicago-based food tech startups like Talk, Tovala, Factor 75. But overall, there's just tons of software and tech-enabled service companies that are getting founded here. And it's in a diverse set of industries. It's honestly in every single industry when you think about it. And I think that's just indicative of the diversity of the industries and of the economy here. So to conclude, I I think there's only reasons to be bullish about Chicago. And I just can't wait to see what the rest of 2021 has in store for both the ecosystem and the show. And speaking of the show, we're going to continue to interview a VC and a founder every week and continue to try to do our part to shine a light on this ecosystem. We want this to ultimately be one of the preeminent podcasts surrounding the Chicago early stage tech scene. So again, if you're interested in hopping on the show or want to inquire about a sponsorship opportunity, please do not hesitate to reach out. And without further ado, Ezra Galston will be kicking off our view of the past six months of Chicago Capital. So one thing I'm curious about as well, and you know, on the topic of returns, VC by nature is ambiguous. There's these long feedback loops, and, th- and that's one of the great challenges of it. But for somebody like you, who you know, you have a cameo in your portfolio, you you've had some success early on in your sort of venture capital career. Does the feedback loop just get a little bit easier to deal with over time? Does the ambiguity get a little bit easier over time, or is that always still a challenge for you as a venture capitalist? I think it's always a challenge. I'm super insecure about my skills in this job. You know, I see my friends running circles around me in San Francisco, in Los Angeles. Cameo is a once in a lifetime kind of business, potentially a once in a career kind of opportunity. It's a great business. What what kept me up at night for a while was, you know, was our first fund a one hit wonder? Did we have, you know, one one winner and, you know, the rest would not really live up? So I, I feel better at night felt I feel better now. I mean, our fairly public about this. Our first fund right now is I think about a five and a half times gross return in three years on paper. Cameo is about half of that, but the the rest of our investments are now half of that as well, which means that they're still the biggest breakout. But that we've sourced a bunch of really really good winners. Whether that's kind of made in cookware, unchained capital, a business here in town called Clover that's doing phenomenally well, Suna, which is a kind of a next gen photo, photo, photo studio in, in Denver, Minneapolis. We found some amazing, amazing investments. Um, that said, does it change the calculus? No, I'm still super insecure. There's, you know, I read, I don't know, term sheet and deal book and tech crunch just like everybody else. And it seems like, companies are growing faster than ever and you look at your own portfolio and you you kind of think are we doing the best that we can what i feel good about is that i is that either myself or our partners deeply believe in every investment that we've ever made we've never made an investment and then kind of like 
regretted it the next morning, you know, like said yes out of pity or something. Like, we, that's not how we operate. We've been super high conviction, everything we do, so that if it works out, it doesn't work out. At least we have a great time with the entrepreneurs, you know, building things. And, and that's, I think, the pleasure of the job. But do I get less insecure? No. If there's anything that makes me hopeful, it's that we've now backed two entrepreneurs who spun out of Cameo, Greg Kaplan, who was interim CMO and started a company called Spot Meetings here in town, which is a product to get you off Zoom and get you into walking meetings. Uh, And then another one, which is a stealth company that doesn't want to be talked about yet. But that makes me really excited that we were a high conviction investor in a business, sat on their board, sit on their board, uh, and that their early employees who are phenomenal kind of came to us, you know, and said, hey, we're going to do X or Y. We'd be interested in you having you on our cap table. That gives me a little bit of confidence moving forward that we treat entrepreneurs and teams well. And so the teams will come back to us as they do new things. But do I stay up at night worrying like that we'll find another unicorn? Yeah, just like everybody else in this business. Next, startup attorney and friend of the show, Trey Calver, is going to talk about resiliency in the job searching process from our episode on June 16th. For you coming out of you know a smaller school, I think there's a lot of people today interested in getting into venture capital. And you know, not everybody went to the Ivy Leagues or to the target schools. And you're somebody who's sort of successfully navigated that path thus far. Curious if you just have any advice for college kids who may be listening or young professionals who maybe don't have the sterling background to date, but they still want to get into venture capital and they still want to work close with entrepreneurs. Any advice or any words of wisdom you would say to those who maybe are just discouraged right now about how challenging it can be to even break in? Yeah, and I I wish there was some secret sauce or some secret formula I could give you. But I mean, really, it's just doing it, you know, going and talking to entrepreneurs, talking to VCs. I mean, there are a ton of fellowships now on different opportunities to get um, engaged with VCs and you know, the, I think the Venture University course. And just, you know, I think if you reach out to VCs, especially analysts and associates, just want to connect with people in the community. Um, so it's fairly easy to get engaged with the community. I don't know, it's not necessarily easy to actually get a role, you know, as a VC. But I mean, really all I did, I, I just tried, right? Like I just tried to put myself in situations around people. I probably looked so stupid half the time where when I had moved to Columbus before law school, I had a, a gap year before law school. And I literally just called people. Like I was driving around downtown Columbus. I saw a sign that said, Innovate. I don't even remember the name of the company, something innovation. I looked it up and it looked like they might be in the startup space. So I literally called the number on their website, left a a message like on the voicemail saying, Hey, my name's Trey. I'm really interested in innovation. I would love to connect, see if we could work together. And they, people listening to this voicemail were probably just laughing at me. Like, right. Like I would just reach out to anyone and anyone that would listen. I think that's part of it. You know, you, if you don't have the network, you don't necessarily have the background, just figure it out on the fly and you go around and reach out to people. And eventually you'll get lucky. Mine, I, Got lucky reaching out to a general counsel at NCT Ventures, uh, Lindsay. She's probably my closest mentor today. And she just got coffee with me and didn't necessarily deserve it for any reason. She gave me some time. And and so that, that kind of got me off. So I'd say, you know, if you want to get into venture, you know, you don't necessarily have the typical background, just reaching out to people, going to events, just putting yourself out there. Eventually, you know, I think you'll, you'll get some traction. On March 17th, Jackson Bubala at Motivate Ventures and I discussed the kaleidoscope of interests he has as a generalist investor and the themes that currently excite him the most. So at Motivate, though we're a generalist fund, I think we over-index on fintech. David and Lauren have a, a deep background and a lot of expertise in that area. They've invested in tons and tons of fintech companies. So a good chunk of our portfolio is in the fintech space. So I've spent a lot of time, even pre-Motivate, digging into fintech. It's obviously a super hot area in, in the venture world today. But financial technology and, and financial services itself is such a core part of basically everything you do on both online and offline. What we've seen with whether it's the verticalization of fintech, where you're building either banks or financial 
financial products for specific groups of people more than just, hey, millennials. Like there's a bank, I think it's called Daylight for the LGBTQ community. So really specifying the customer base you're building for is, is something in fintech that I've been paying attention to. But outside of fintech, e-commerce is also a very hot space right now. There's a lot of opportunity there because COVID accelerated adoption quite significantly. So there are new things popping up every day, whether it's in returns, e-commerce enablement. There's a lot of stuff for small businesses. Those much like in the food space, which I can get to, the small businesses were sort of left behind. The e-commerce giants dominated COVID. They took over, you know, they took back market share from what's called, I guess, the long tail. We've looked at a lot of tools that are helping small businesses make the transition to e-commerce and do that in a cost-effective, efficient way and, and helping them sort of compete with the, the big players, borrowing Shopify's motto, you know, arming the rebels. The food space is something I'm also extremely interested in. I have a deep personal background in it, but from an investment perspective, still learning uh, about new models and new technologies that can be applied to the industry, whether it's ghost kitchens or uh, software like Bento Box and Lunchbox that are helping small businesses. So definitely still learning there, super interested in that, given my background. On the some of the stuff that maybe I don't have as much experience with, I think direct-to-consumer brands and products is, is something that I haven't spent a lot of time in. We haven't invested in a lot of those companies. And it's really heavy on sales and marketing, especially now when ad channels and ad networks are heavily saturated. It sort of feels like a race to the bottom as products become commoditized. That's a space I think is extremely competitive, really hard to differentiate on, and something I just don't have a ton of experience in. So that's, I'd say, the number one thing that I tend to stay away from just because I don't have expertise or much experience in the key disciplines that are required in there, which is sales and marketing. I'd love to, you mentioned a couple of different industries there, and I'd love to unpack a few of them that I think you and I have had some great experiences with analyzing potential investments at Manifold and just chatting about e-commerce in particular. You've written about e-commerce in some of your recent stealing sign issues. One of them, you analyze a piece written about Navarre's ascension over the past decade by serving brands that are not quite the behemoth e-commerce aggregators, but also not SMBs per se. In your mind, as we enter 2021, you touch on this a bit, but where do you think the biggest opportunities lie in e-commerce SaaS investing? I think an overarching theme I've been thinking a lot about is the personalization of e-commerce. So thinking about it from a consumer's perspective, better product recommendations, a more intimate experience with a specific brand or even a market, an e-commerce marketplace. I think a couple areas in which opportunities I think are still sit today still are SMB e-commerce enablement, helping the long tail of retailers compete against the large aggregators. There are millions and millions of small businesses. Uh, I think a vertical approach has worked and, and will continue to work well there. So whether we looked at a company that's doing it for furniture, or whether somebody wants to do it with cleaning products or to pick any vertical. But I think I think a, a company that's done that, like the to take the vertical sort of thesis of Squire is sort of a SaaS management platform for barbershops. If you take that to e-commerce, right, let's take furniture, for example, furniture retailers probably have a lot of the same needs. At the end of the day, maybe they aren't that different from cup manufacturers or bottled water, whatever it is, but there are specific needs enough to warrant something that is purpose-built for that group. So I think if you take the long tail of SMBs, figure out which verticals have the most acute pain points, there's some opportunity there to help them either better list on e-commerce aggregators, spin up their own direct connection with customers, or sort of better manage their inventory across omni-channel, right? Across the e-commerce aggregator, direct-to-consumer, et cetera. Back to the personalization of e-commerce, something I've been thinking a lot about recently and have seen some interesting companies in this space is how do you enhance the customer experience such that it's both personal and virtually frictionless. One example is one-to-one -one video chat instead of a chatbot. Hey, I want to have an interaction just like we're having for 15 seconds or 30 seconds versus typing into a chatbot, waiting for a response, having to answer a bunch of different questions that are maybe unrelated. Like I just want an answer very quickly and I want it to feel natural and conversational. I think there's some opportunity there. Also on personalization of products, a lot of times this requires data that isn't just from the transaction data specifically. So the more data you can pull in from the more unique data sources, I think is really interesting because the last thing I want to do is go on and have a really hard time finding what I want. I still think it's hard to find what you want on Amazon, for example, even on sites that, okay, hey, I'm not just selling one product, but maybe I have 15 different products and a bunch of different iterations of those. I want the ones that are perfect for me to be surfaced right away. I'm okay sharing some data and some information to get there, which I think is a big hurdle that does need to be sort of overcome and hasn't really yet. But so the personalization of the customer experience 
experience on e-commerce, I think I, th- I do think there is a lot of opportunity there. You've talked a lot about vertical specific approaches for some of these e-commerce enablement businesses. Do you think it's important to have a founder who has a deep domain expertise? Because as you talked about understanding these pain points thoroughly and creating your product and iterating your product to try and solve those pain points, to me, seems like the more viable route versus a horizontal approach where you're trying to sort of plug into many different verticals. You might not be addressing the specific needs. You might face a lot of churn when you know specific verticals realize this just doesn't this doesn't fit. This product is not really made for me. Do you like to see a founder in that situation who has deep domain expertise? Is it a must-have? Is it a nice-to-have? How do you think about that? I think there are shades of it, but I, I think it's a must-have. I think domain expertise is obviously super valuable when you're thinking about okay, I'm putting myself in the customer's shoes. It's really hard to do that if you haven't been a customer yourself. And in this case, not the end customer, but the customer of your software. We looked at one company and the founder had actually started a business in the area he was building for. So he was a customer of the software he then built for like two years. That's extremely valuable. You can do all the customer interviews in the world, but there are things that you just can't uncover in those that you can being a customer, being a user of that potential piece of software. So we absolutely look for domain expertise It doesn't need to be as deep as that example, but showing an understanding of both your customer's pain point and then their end customer's pain point, experience, needs, wants, et cetera, is super important. No, I think that makes total sense, but I wanted to jump back real quick to a point you previously made. You mentioned personalization of the e-commerce experience, but how do you think about scale and scaling that type of personalization? Chatbots are clunky and there are so many issues with them, but they're scalable and utilize artificial intelligence. And and that's a tech that you can sort of implement and scale pretty quickly. I love your idea about the personalization aspect, but how do you weigh the scaling component? I think if you're building software in in e-commerce, the market is so big and and there is such a long tail that obviously reaching a large number of customers and servicing them efficiently is critical. It's and if you don't, you're not going to be around for a long time. One thing we've we've seen as of late is SMS marketing. It's a very busy space. There are a lot of interesting companies doing SMS marketing, but that is something that's ultra scalable, right? If you can touch everybody on their phone, everybody quote everybody has a phone these days. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a great point. Moving on from e-commerce to an area that you've kind of written extensively about, and I know it really excites you, marketplace, B2B marketplaces specifically. Would love to hear about your history with that. What got you excited about it in the first place? And what still excites you to this day about B2B marketplace businesses? I think the concept of introducing liquidity into a market that hasn't had it is really exciting because you can see effects of that. The success can happen really quickly. It's sort of the whole network effects flywheel concept. But when you introduce a, if you take a transaction that has historically been really opaque, there's this whole theory in the B2B marketplace space is do you start with a transaction that has historically been offline or do you start with something that is online but a pretty poor experience? I think there are fair arguments on both sides, but if you take one that has been offline, for example, that transaction is likely very opaque, especially at the enterprise level when you're dealing with two different businesses. There are multiple levels of management that are likely involved. There are different teams, potentially in different offices and different geographies, often in different departments, whether it's accounting, vendor management, the finance department. So there's a lot of complexity. Data is often siloed. Information, so I guess data and information is often siloed. Different pieces of the transaction are siloed. So it's like the finance department deals with the transaction. The vendor management deals with the relationship with said other party. So when you unify that and and create one system of record for not only the transaction, but all the data involved in that transaction and the relationship between each business, you can arrive at something really powerful and that can fundamentally change the way in which businesses interact with each other. The other piece of B2B marketplaces that excite me that is related there is the SaaS enabled component. You have a marketplace, you have a business on one side, another business on another side, you create a place for them to transact. As we talked about, there's a lot of other data involved in that transaction. There's data before the transaction and there's data after the transaction, and there's data that multiple parties need access to and need to track. The SaaS component there creates 
an even more sticky product than the the marketplace, which facilitates the transaction because it gives those the buyer and the seller one place to not only transact, but to track all of the data that's involved with that to track historical performance or to keep tabs. If you know, a common B2B marketplaces these days are in like parts. So whether it's like airplane parts or tractor parts or construction parts, right? Those parts aren't just sitting in a vacuum. They're, they go on, you know, an airplane or they go on a tractor. Companies that are buying tractor parts probably have more than one tractor or they have more than one plane. So doing something like fleet management or understanding how parts decay over time and doing some predictive stuff around, okay, hey, you're going to probably need to buy parts for these number of your tractors in X amount of years. A pure marketplace doesn't have that. But when you tack on the SaaS piece, it just expands the scope of the areas of your customers' businesses that you are a part of and that you have access to. Once those businesses start using it, it's really hard to stop using it. On a July Founder Friday episode, Ari Perlin from Vizon talked about the experience of starting a company with his dad. What's it been like to co-found a company with your dad? And what's it been like to do so here in Chicago? <laughs> so I, I'll be totally honest. The first two years of me doing this with my father, it was very weird. Um, not, not working with him. We actually worked together extremely well. We like get along super well. I don't think if we had started this when I was a teenager or even in college, it would have gotten nearly as well, considering some of the arguments that erupted over things like calculus homework back in high school. But uh, it's interesting. One of the harder things to adjust to is in my emails and roll-ups and notes and all that and important applications and documents referring to my father as Dr. Perlin instead of dad which I've been known to do on even things like the SBIR application going dad, like, oh yeah, dad got this many grants and published this. Oh, nope, nope. Dr. Perlin, Dr. Perlin. So there's been that. And then it's also, I think it drives my family crazy to an extent, not, not in a good crazy, but they're like, oh my God, they're just always talking about this. And so in a way it's actually been really amazing. It's probably the closest I've ever been to my father. We talk every day because he's one of my co-founders. And there's always like, we, we get we get our business done. We spend 75% of the time talking on Fazian, but then it means that I get that 25% of, I know what's going on in his life. He knows what's going on in mine. He knows that I'm trying to generate the willpower to actually pick up my guitar again. I know that all he wants to do is talk about how he's learning drums. And it's a, it's a good give and take. It's, it's cool. He's become one of my best friends in the process of this. So, yeah, but I will say having meetings with professors and start opening your pitch with, so there's this thing me and my dad are doing. Like, it, uh, it takes a while to get comfortable. <laughs> in one of our most downloaded and first episodes to date, Joe Dwyer from Manifold Group took us through some of the structural challenges facing the VC asset class. For an industry that accounts for almost 25% of the gross domestic product of our country, to barely return capital to limited partners over the last several decades doesn't make sense. Somebody is getting a tremendous amount of value because they're going from zero to a lot. And who is it? A lot of it's going to the founders. And that, that makes sense because they're taking a big risk and they're absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. You know, VCs are critical too. But how is it that you can justify them making really good money? Because most VCs do really, in, in the end, I think, make good money. Either that or they, they wash out. But the money's not going back to the LPs. There's something wrong with the structure. And being the operator that I am, the entrepreneur that I am, I couldn't help but start to try, try to figure out what's going on, what's wrong. And frankly, I can't help avoiding, I can't avoid thinking, what can I do to fix it? And so my theory, basically, it's a broader theory, but the core is that the two and 20 model, the, the, the way that venture capital funds are typically organized and compensated involves 2% per year for management fee times about 10 years. So about 20% of all the capital that goes into any fund is allocated towards uh, operating expenses. And most of which goes to the partner's salaries and the team salaries. That makes sense. And, and frankly, if you look at a small fund, that's, it's really hard to live on that. But that's not the reality because if you're a, a venture capitalist, if you're a GP at a, at a fund and your first fund is successful, 
and it's relatively small, you're going to want your next one to be bigger because that 2% per year really makes a difference. And you, you might be living kind of light, thin. And so you're going to want to raise more money and, and more money per partner, particularly because that's how you really increase your guaranteed compensation. But unfortunately, that starts to price you out of the early market. You get you know, bigger later. You have to write larger. You either have to write larger checks, which is really what you have to do, or you can do some spray and pray early, which I'm not at all a fan of, and the returns for that are typically terrible. And so what you see is these funds with very capable you know, venture capitalists moving later and later in the risk curve because it makes you know, economic sense for them but it really doesn't make economic sense for the LPs. And there are a lot of reasons why it doesn't make sense for the LPs. One of which is that very straight, straight math, a risk and return are directly correlated. And as you move later in the risk curve with less risk, your returns are going to be reduced. Now that's fine. That's really in the end, I think most, most people who call themselves venture capitalists today are growth equity investors. They don't admit it. It's high. I would think about it. And it's really important because the skills and the activities and the returns are very different for that than they are for early stage investing. But they presented themselves to the market as venture capitalists with venture capital style returns. I don't know if people have been paying much attention, but if you look at what PCs said they were going to do in the 90s and the early 2000s versus what VCs say is a good return today, the numbers have changed dramatically, right? They've gone down. So the IRR used to be, you really were saying, I'm going to try to do 30, 40% IRR. And now, you know, if you're a 15 to 20% IRR, you're, you're top tier. There's also another top tier that's way above that, but that's a whole nother matter. And, uh, you know, the, the return on capital multiple. So they've done two things. They've, they've changed what they're saying venture capital is, but they've also moved later in the risk curve. And what they end up having to do is they end up having to try to make these better returns that they're they're not promising, but, you know, implying. And I think what they end up doing is they end up jamming cap tables with lots of money, making these companies take a ton of risk that most of which is inappropriate. And they break a lot of cap tables, break a lot of companies, and they're leaving dead bodies along the path to success. And then what they'll do is there's a much, much lower success rate uh, than there should be. And frankly, there's a much lower success rate than is commonly discussed, right? So you'll hear a VC say, you know, one out of 10 succeed. You look at the real math from some Harvard research and elsewhere, it's more like one in 25. Now, though, that one in 25 can be truly amazing, right? Because they're going after these really big moonshots. So when they work, they can be transformative for a fund or several funds, frankly, because you make so much money with one fund that you get a pass for the next two. The problem is that in aggregate, as an industry, as an asset class, they're not, it's not enough to make the great returns. And I'll point out something else that's really worth looking at if anybody cares to. If you look at um, returns for venture capital as an asset class over time, as reported by, for example, Cambridge Partners, you'll see DPI, TVPI, right? So there's going to be the, the actual return money, and then there's going to be the theoretical return money. So it, it's based on the some market comp for your asset. It hasn't been liquidated yet. So you're having to use, say, this is what it's worth. You have to go back almost 10 years for the, for the majority, for more than I think 70 or 80% of returns to be measured in actual cash. That's a long time. And what you'll see is every year as these reports go through, the gap starts to narrow and it all comes down. So there, the, it's very easy for me to see, and I'm going to write a blog post and do the whole expose on this. Ooh, I'm an investigative journalist. What you'll see is that they're overvaluing the assets, their holdings. And I think this is, it's the unicorn economy, which to me is ridiculous. Most of the unicorns out there, in my opinion, are worth nothing like what they're valued at. And there are a couple of things that are worth talking about there. One is, is there's a very strong interest in the part of the venture capitalists to have them valued publicly which is unusual, right? You didn't used to go out there and say, hey, we just invested at a $1.7 billion valuation. You didn't announce that before. The reason to announce it is to make it clear to the market, A, how successful you are, I get PR, I get LPs, get money, but also to try to cement this notion that this company is actually worth $1.7 billion. Of course, that makes the VC look good, makes them look like their returns, at least on paper, are good. And, but the problem is that if you actually look under the hood and look at some of these deals, which I've had occasion to do on multiple occasions, for example, helping RLPs evaluate 
investment decisions alongside some of these funds, they are in no way appropriately marked at that 1.7 billion, for example. And there are so many ways, if you are a sophisticated investor, to have a nominal valuation that has nothing to do, literally nothing to do with the actual valuation. I'll give you one simple example. I looked at a deal that was, I think, valued nominally at $5 billion. But really what it was, was a, it was a combination of factors, including a call option, but most importantly, a guaranteed return, literally a guaranteed return. So it did not matter when this thing goes, it was, it was a, it was a bridge to pub, going public. No matter what happened in that public offering, the investors in this round were going to make X times their money. That means the valuation's immaterial. It just, that doesn't, whatever. And I, and I said as much to the people, I advised them not to make the investment uh, because I actually thought there were some structural weaknesses in the business. And then I won't say too much, but it turned out I was right. I'm not always right, but I was right that time. Anyway, there's another thing that's going on and it's, you say to yourself, well, okay, fine, wait, why do the limited partners who are smart and rent seeking, why, why do they, why do they allow this to keep happening? And I think there's a couple of reasons why this is happening. Number one is, and it's a larger theme that plays all the way back to uh, this notion that early stages where all the real returns are uh, and where VC is iffy. And that is that data availability, transparency, AI or pseudo AI really is all we've got today that I have mean that alpha has left the building, right? So the differentiated returns are gone. They're almost entirely gone from the public markets. You know, they're almost almost entirely gone from the later stage private markets too. And they're leaving every place except for places where there is significant opacity, right? And where execution is the real determinant of success. And early stage is one of the very few places where that is true, right? You do not, you, you can't price uncertainty. You can't even evaluate performance with any sort of objective measure. It's a thing that just chafes so many investors. They don't know how to deal with it. They hate it. I love it. I love the complexity. You can root through it. You can understand it. You can price it. It's just really hard. And at least as of now, AI and data transparency have not met the early stage markets and you, you cannot just price them. You can't, you can't find alpha. You have to make alpha in the early stages. In late April, Jackie DeMonte from Chicago Ventures gave us a great overview of the evolution of the Chicago investing philosophy over the past few years. I'd love to talk about Chicago Ventures. And, you know, you recently joined the team and they recently raised, I think, was it a $63 million fund three? So congratulations on all of that. I know the whole entire, it felt like Chicago Twitter uh, ecosystem was a buzz with Chicago Venture News. And I'd love if you could talk about, you know, what led you to join, join the firm and, and, you know, talk a little bit about the thesis behind Chicago Ventures. Sure. And thank you for that. I'm, I'm very excited to be a part of the team. And obviously, new fund announcements are exciting, especially for the community, because it means more, you know, more capital coming, coming back to um, invest in startups. So starting with how I joined CB, there were two, two driving forces, if I had to boil it down. One was people, and it started with my peers, Peter and, and Lindsay, who have been sort of my best friends in venture and obviously developed personal relationships as well, basically since the beginning. I mean, I probably met Peter and Lindsay within my first month of, of starting in venture and just kept a consistent relationship from there. So really wanting to work with those folks. And then obviously the, the rest of the team that I got to know over time was a, was a great opportunity for me. I mean, how often can you just have both things work out that you're, you're working with, you know, sort of your, um, your best friends. And then the other side of it was geographic. So I moved to Austin a little over a year ago, actually, right before the pandemic. And one of the things that Chicago Ventures has been super strategic about is getting a foothold down here in, in Austin. So from a, a standpoint of having a person present here, especially as the ecosystem has been growing and you know getting buzzier, has been hopefully a mutually beneficial thing for, for them and for me. I had certainly spent some time in the Southeast before that, or before this, so sort of combining forces and and being able to bridge those networks has been has been super beneficial. So so those were kind of the driving forces with with coming over. I mean, the firms are actually fairly similar when you look at the macro scope of things. You know, we invest outside of traditional coastal areas. 
you know, kind of early stage, although Chicago Ventures is is very much straight and narrow on the on the seed track. So we, you know, invest in sort of that that seed range or that's pre-seed, seed, post-seed, you know, it all, all kind of blends together. And and we are really focused on, you know, sort of finding the overlooked entrepreneurs in the overlooked areas. Um, and to me, you know, when when you kind of go back to that that mission or like what what really excites you about essentially deploying capital where you are is is a lot of that. So all of that put together, you know, very, very good fit for me, me personally. And then Chicago Ventures, you know, I touched on on what we do. I think that we are going to have an increasingly large impact on both the Chicago ecosystem, but, you know, call it the the greater middle of the country or non, non-coastal area. Um, and part of that is because we are leading rounds at the seed stage and leading them with, you know, high conviction checks. Um, and if you've been around sort of the Chicago ecosystem for a few years now, you'll see that we we went through this sort of wave of growing conviction within the ecosystem. And by that, I mean, five years ago at the seed stage, everyone was just throwing checks everywhere, right? You'd have a tech stars company that would, you know, sort of be the darling and then everyone would put in a hundred or 200 K or you'd have the spin out from another popular startup and everyone would just kind of like throw in some capital. And what, what happened was like, no one really had true ownership or responsibility for that company. And at the same time, um, if they went to uh, go on and, and raise bigger rounds or, or be successful, like, also, you didn't have the optionality that that you wanted to really grow that position. And so I think the whole ecosystem went through this like mature, maturing process. Um, and in that process, some funds raised, raised larger funds, right? And, and started to focus a little bit more at the post-seed or Series A, maybe even Series B stage. Um, and then you had a few funds really focus in on seed, but but raise you know, 10, 20, $30 million funds. So you might be leading rounds, but quarter or half million dollar checks. And then you have Chicago Ventures like right there in the middle, which is true seed. You know, we want to write 500 to $2 million checks, really be that partner in the first institutional round. And I think that that is a really exciting opportunity, both both for us, but then also I think it is just so helpful because we we still don't have enough seed capital in in the geographies that we're investing in and and it is it is you know the world is flattening more bay area funds or new york funds are, are starting to get involved at, at the seed stages but certainly not to the extent where finding a lead is easy for everyone and so i i am excited for that opportunity and also what that means you know for for the city both both chicago and and the areas around on June 9th, Rick Desai of Listen Ventures gave a clear and sober analysis of the current state of the Chicago tech landscape. You've been kind of involved in the ecosystem here for 10, you know, over 10 years, I think going back to your time at 1871 in, in Dashfire. How would you say the startup community here has has grown and progressed um, in your time that you've been here? Yeah, there, there was a post by, in Pando Daily in like 2012 that said it was called Midwest Mentality, and it basically was a massive takedown piece on Chicago saying there's no way in an ecosystem where people leave work at six o'clock to take care of their kids. Can you can you launch successful companies? And the amount of the amount of energy, like it brought Chicago together and pushed them forward. And someone said to me, he's like, Rick, do you agree? And the comment back to me is like, if Twitter had started in Chicago in 2008 um, and it said, hey, can you provide us unlimited capital? with no business model, I don't think Chicago would have supported it. And that's okay. We supported a lot of really great businesses in 2008 that have done extremely well for this ecosystem. Groupon, Grubhub, Fieldglass, like, like Cleversafe. We've done a great job. But that type of business would never have found funding here because the, the Midwest mentality, in my view, is find product market fit by revenue, not by engagement. And that's okay. But fast forward to, to 2021, we've gone from being on the ground floor of the new internet to being on the third floor. Are we on the 10th floor where the valley is? No, but we don't need to be there yet. We're moving at our pace. So so I think the change has been incredible. And I think what's awesome, and it hasn't been all intrinsic, meaning it hasn't happened from only the people who started this community. So a massive hat tip to all of the players who, who took us from the dot-com bust to 2009, 2012, 1871. When you look at the energy that came in from, from, from who, that flanked this ecosystem, that was awesome. You know, new accelerators, new ways of thinking, 
like you know one of you know I, I'm a big fanboy for Ezra um, at starting line. Like he just he he is uh, quite confident in telling the world what he thinks and very humble to tell him when he got it wrong. Like he puts himself out there. Like he's the only one one of us that puts himself out there and speaks with with a voice and with authority. And that wasn't happening before. So I love that we've been flanked by new thoughts, new innovation, new perspectives. Um, um, I think that's really, really important. I look forward to more of that. On a July episode, Gail Wilkinson from Vitalize Ventures spoke to us about the challenges of working in VC as a woman and her career-long goal to democratize access to capital for underrepresented founders. And you've mentioned... A couple of times on the show, you know, providing democratizing access to capital to underrepresented founders. When in your career did you realize this was going to be an issue that was truly near and dear to you that you wanted to champion and allocate, you know, so much of your time towards? When did that sort of, you know, decision, you know, for you really crystallize? I don't, I don't know. I guess it's always, it's always been, been there. I mean, there been times since I started Irish Angels nine years ago where I walked into a room with um, another investor and they're expecting there to be a guy behind me because they thought that, you know, Gail was a guy's name and oh my gosh, you're a woman. And so that's the kind of stuff has happened to me so often. Um, I do think women and underrepresented minorities are treated differently. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I think it's really unfortunate. And I'm sitting in a position of privilege and I I used to not say anything because you can kind of get raked over the coals for saying that this stuff is not, is not where where it should be. But especially in the last few years, I've decided, you know, I have to, I have to do this. I have to do what I can to make an impact here. And I know a lot of my peers are out there doing the same thing. And if enough of us make an impact, then there will be change faster. So that's kind of how, how I view it. I'm not doing a ton. I'm doing what I can. And I think the big shift for me is I'm talking about it now. And I, I, I understand that some people are going to um, typecast me or whatever. And like, I just, I don't care. Then they're not the right fit for me in terms of being a co-investor or an LP in, in our fund. In early April, my girl Kristen Pacifico hit us with the best joke we've had yet on Chicago Capital and then followed it up with her view of the Chicago tech ecosystem. Do you guys invest thematically? I mean, do you look for Bessemer Ventures, calls it like roadmaps, or do you have an investment thesis and you go out and try and find companies within that thesis? Or do you see what the market gives you and invest a little more opportunistically? How do you guys think about that? I would say our themes are more specifically driven by the needs of our corporates. So as we're thinking about building a corporate strategy and thinking about how we can bring innovation to a larger business that's been around for a hundred and something years and to think about different pockets of tech disruption and how we can basically capitalize on that and pull levers to make it beneficial to both the startup and the corporate. That's really what drives a lot of our interest is from conversations that we've had with our corporate partners to understand how we can best help. So I think another category that I'm particularly excited about is electrification at large and thinking about how many companies today are now building out the infrastructure for enabling an electric future, thinking about bringing electrification to vehicles, thinking about charging stations to enable this, thinking about improvements in battery technology, autonomy, everything across that spectrum is fascinating to me. And I guess that gets me charged up. So that's where I've been focusing a lot. Yeah, I did just make a joke. Probably not very clever though. Um, but I do, I do love this category, and it, it's just exciting because across the spectrum, I've seen really young entrepreneurs who are excited about the space and building a more sustainable future, and then also seeing the byproduct of years and years of research and lifelong entrepreneurs who are dedicating their time and energy into developing cutting-edge technology that will be enabler for the future. So I think that's a core area that's important to us, to our corporate partners, and we're trying to understand how we can best play in that space. I think that's really exciting. I loved that electrification pun. That was excellent. (laughs) I might have that be the quote for the episode, but I'd love to switch gears a little bit back to Chicago. You've been around in the ecosystem now for about 
five years. And just curious about your thoughts about where the startup community is here in Chicago. Maybe some of your thoughts about how you would describe it, what your kind of prognosis is for the community. The Chicago ecosystem is, I think, unlike any other ecosystem because there are a collision of different things happening. So a city like Chicago is a city of industry. There are the most diverse environments anywhere in the U.S. in terms of big companies that have come in and have established their roots for a very long time. Anything from finance to food to insurance, basically any industry you could imagine exists in Chicago and has for a very long time. So I think the history of Chicago is very rich. And I think also blending with that is the diversity of talent that we have here. Knowing that there are incredible education programs in schools like Northwestern, Booth, which, <laughs> Booth University of Chicago, um, uh, UIC, just top engineers. There's just a robust amount of talent here in the Midwest, in Chicago. And so I think trying to find a way to marry all of those things, it just results in creating this hub or a very natural epicenter for talent and tech and entrepreneurship to come together. I also think that this is an area that is still pretty young and vibrant and growing. And it's been exciting just to see how platforms like Built In, Built In Chicago, Techstars Chicago, hubs like Tech Nexus 1871 have continued to grow and explode. And also seeing how so many amazing startups are coming out of these different education centers like Polsky, The Garage at Northwestern, just seeing the talent put to use by building a better future, a vision for adding tech to the way that these different students or entrepreneurs envision the world. So I think the Chicago ecosystem is maybe unlike anywhere else I've seen, and it's really been built by the brow of sweat of so many talented individuals. And I think we'll continue to grow as a result of that. So I'm excited that I'm here and I'm a part of that story and hopefully continuing to help build that story. But especially coming out of COVID and thinking about the ability to have meetups and the ability for people to congregate and communicate again. I think that we're going to see really an excitement and a, a jump in activity as people are able to see the magic in person, as opposed to a lot of the virtual meetups and things that we've been doing during the past year. Even though it was summer, class was still in session here on Chicago Capitol as Booth professors Ira Weiss and Jason Heltzer stopped by to talk about the early stage investing landscape in the history of Chicago. Jason is the managing partner at Origin Ventures, and Ira served as a managing partner at Hyde Park Venture Partners. I, I mean, I think it's it's ten unicorns now in 2021 that Chicago has minted. It's 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 been pretty incredible to watch. And I think in our remaining time, you know, I would just love to hear, you know, broadly speaking, you know, zooming out for a bit. Do you think there's anything else Chicago can continue to do to improve as a tech ecosystem? You know, what do you want to continue to see? Uh, over the years uh, that Chicago as an ecosystem can do? Um, it's a great question. I mean, I think my hope is, you know, really I think about like how does Chicago get on the tech map? Um, and it does that, through, frankly, through bigger and bigger successes. Um, you know, five to $10 billion tech successes, like, the, you know, really like the Grubhubs of the world, like the Pelosities of the world. Um, you know, we have a really good crop of next gen companies like that. Companies like, you know, the ones in our portfolio, G2, ShipBob, Four Kites, um, Avant and Amount that are also in our portfolio. Um, you know, a company called Fest Radius is in our portfolio. And then, you know, big, big local ones like Active Campaigns and Relativity that are like multi billion dollar private tech companies um, and a bunch of other, you know, M1 Finance and Cameo and some bunch of others. I think, you know, historically Chicago's had a lot of companies where the founders, I think, you know, for a variety of reasons sold out when the companies were worth about a billion dollars. So you have, you know, um, clever a company called clever safe that was sold to, um, IBM for 1.4 billion. You have a company called, um, uh, uh, field glass that was sold to SAP for a billion. You have a recent one called tasty trade that was sold for a billion. A lot of founders, you know, it's, it's really, it's mostly their decision. They're like, well, this company, it's great. It's gotten to be as large as I would have could imagine for. Uh, but I think for, for Chicago to really be on the map, we need, you know, that next level. And I think fortunately you, you have a, a newer crop of founders 
that are aiming, you know, that do seem to be aiming for these larger outcomes. And I think, you know, maybe that's also, they're able to take a little bit more money off the table. Um, and so it's a little easier for them to do that, but we have a bunch of this next group. And I think, you know, the way we could help mostly is just like funding more and more companies at the seed and early stage, because you just, you know, you never know in some ways, which companies are going to end up being that billion or multi-billion dollar company. And so the more, the more capital there, the better. Um, you know, I think really good entrepreneurs, you know, frankly, will figure it out. Um, and so the more we can get in the stable and the easier it is for them to get capital at the early stages, I think the better, the better off um, we will be. I think another ecosystem that's gone under, you know, a huge transformation, at least in my estimation in the last 10 years is the Chicago startup and tech ecosystem. Um, as somebody who's been around for 20 years in this ecosystem, in the tech scene, what are some of the biggest developments you've seen? How do you think the ecosystem is positioned for growth in the next decade? Yeah, I'll say, boy, there've been lots of changes. I mean, I think when, when I started investing in 2001 in Chicago, Chicago had, let's, let's call it an inferiority complex. And uh, there, were, there were some successes, not many. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a trickier time, but there were some good successful companies that came out of that, that cohort in that era, uh, but, but not, a lar- not, a, not a large number of them and not, not humongous, humongous successes. Uh, but then you look at maybe the past um, five to seven years, where you know that's really changed, and and part of it is is a is a systematic change. You know, we we have cloud computing, so people can rent and lease infrastructure. So you could be a, a software engineer, and you could build a company, and you could spend incremental money on marketing, and you could launch something very inexpensively. Uh, and that didn't exist when I started. You know, you have to raise five million to buy servers before you wrote a line of code, and so that really paved the way for the angel market because now smaller dollars could have much bigger impact, number one. Number two, a company in that seed early stage, when they originally initially come to investors, they've got something. They've got a product. They've got customers. And all of a sudden now, for someone who's not a professional investor uh, but, but wants to have exposure and has some level of sophistication, can now make those investments with greater confidence. And so you saw a wave of that, as I said, seven years ago, maybe, uh, that really started to accelerate things. Because then for someone who's a professional investor like me that might invest at, you know, not in that pre-seed stage as much, but seed and and certainly series A stage when a company has a million to five million revenue. Now, all of a sudden, we have a lot more companies from which to choose. They have proven more. It becomes easier. And I think Chicago benefited from that. And then it benefited from some very high profile successes. You know, we we obviously know Grubhub well. Uh, Origin Ventures was the first investor in Grubhub, and led uh, rode that to the IPO. And uh, until recently, Grubhub was an independent company that was public in Chicago that was founded here as well. And that is a beacon of light and inspiration for many engineers. Uh, and, you know, it's no longer independent, which is a bit of a bit of a bummer. But that's what you need. You do need that uh, those very successful companies create a bunch of wealthy angels who then recycle that back. And I'll tell you the other thing that's really helped is 1871, which is our co our, uh, our, I don't want to call it incubator, but it's a co-working space. It was one of the first built um, in, in the country, certainly one of the biggest scale uh, that had a lot of support systems around it. And, you know, I was an engineer and I worked for a consulting firm and I was in business casual in the loop downtown in tall, nice office buildings. And I had a, a very comfortable lifestyle and, and job. You know, I, if I had walked into 1871, if someone said, hey, do you want to join a startup? I, I might have said, again, before business school, boy, that sounds risky. Like, I'm not sure about that. And then, but then 1871 exists. And if you take a bunch of engineers like I was, and you walk them through and say, okay, you could work for this company. And if this company fails the other 199 that are in the same floor, two floors, are all going to want to hire you, all of a sudden it doesn't look so risky. And then you say, wait a second, everyone's in River North in shorts and a t-shirt and like wearing their headphones, like that's pretty cool. And wait, there's no client, like they're building for themselves and wait, they own part of the company. And all of a sudden you get talent 
much more interested in taking that risk. And that's the piece that I think I, it's never been that we don't have the engineering schools or the engineering talent here. It's that they needed those high profile successes and things like 1871 to really dramatize. It's not as risky as you think. And I think that that's really changed. Now, we still have work to do. We, we have to build a more diverse group of found and fund a more diverse group of founders. That's one. Um, two, we need more of those high, high profile successes. You know, Origin Ventures, we invest across the country and in Canada. So we're not just in Chicago. We are founded here. Our largest office is here. But we have a large presence in Salt Lake City, and we, we invest all over the place. Uh, in 19 different markets, we've invested. And one thing that Salt Lake City has is a lot of technology companies that have gone public and, and multi-billion dollar outcomes. And the companies in Chicago have you know, tend to sell to other buyers uh, rather than going public. Some have gone public, more are going public. That is awesome. And because those become, again, those are the, the companies that are great inspiration for that next founder, for that engineer, that great marketing person to leave the very comfortable jobs they have and all the great big companies here in Chicago to go join a startup. There's so much there. There's so much to unpack. I think one, you know, one topic that I've, I've, come across and a thought that I've had is we've mentioned Grubhub, we've mentioned Talk, we've mentioned Tovala. You guys are lucky enough to have been involved in, if not the first investor in all of those. Would you say it's fair to say the Chicagoland area, Chicago is sort of a food tech hub, a nexus for food tech innovation? And are there other industries that you all think, or we think that Chicago has the ability to take sort of a, a market leadership position in? Yeah, yeah. Certainly, there have been a lot of great food tech companies, and you, you named a handful of them there. And there are plenty of others that we haven't invested that were born here. You know, we, uh, the, you know, there's an incubator called Relishworks uh, that is focused on food tech, and and there are a bunch of investors, smaller smaller funds like uh, Barrel VC is one example that loves food tech stuff. Um, you and and there are a handful of others too, a Bluestein. Um, that also does that. So th there's definitely a concentration here. And I think we can continue to build and invent really, you know, Farmer's Fridge is a great company, really great uh, food companies here. And, and part of it is because we've got some of the best CPG companies that are headquartered here. McDonald's is headquartered here. Like we, we are, uh, have, have historically been a transportation hub um, that has been important for logistics and food. And of course, uh, we're in the Midwest where we grow a lot of food. So it, it, is, it has been, and I think will continue to be a great place for that. Chicago is a very integrated economy. And you know, one thing that's different than Los Angeles and New York, for example, that tend to be more dependent on a particular industry, Chicago is very well diversified. And in some ways that's great, in some ways it's not as good, you know, as you try to build a, a character or a marketing uh, slogan, let's say, for, for what we are as a tech community, but I'm grateful for that because they're experts in pretty much everything you'd need here in the city. Uh, transportation would be the other one besides food I would mention. You know, Chicago historically, whether by, by its history as a, a fur trading hub very you know, in the days of Fort Dearborn, or because of the realities of its location in the middle of what eventually becomes the United States as a rail hub, you know, it has always been good at logistics. And and so, uh, but but also the the and the financial markets. If you look at the derivatives markets, you know New York City didn't think derivatives was going to be big and thought they were you know not useful. But but those markets were all born here, and so there continues to be an enormous amount of talent that understands uh, financial markets, quantitative trading that uh, you only can find rivaled in New York. And so again, uh, I've just named three that are, but I could keep going. There's just, it's a very well integrated economy. And I, I think that could, you know, can be a very big strength. And finally, Kathleen Brown recently joined us on the show to talk about her company, Buddy, and her journey as a cancer survivor in one of my favorite episodes to date. Kathleen, this has been amazing. I, I can honestly say this has been one of the most incredible episodes we've had. I think a question that, you know, has sort of been on my mind as as we've been talking, you know, we, we have a ton of founders on the show in business school. I'm around founders all the time, meeting with founders as part of my job. And it is, you know, it's just one of the hardest things you can do with your professional career. It's it's yeah. such a roller coaster of emotions. There's so many highs, there's so many lows, and the lows are very low and the highs are yeah. very high. Yeah. 
do, do you feel like your experiences in such formative years of your life, you know, in your teenage years when you were really kind of coming into your own and growing up, do you feel like your experiences in life gave you a new perspective, gave you a concrete perspective on life that you've maintained with you all through these years that allow you to just view this process maybe just a little bit differently or how has it affected your sort of, you know, your philosophy um, as you've you know gone through different journeys in life? Wow, that is such a great question, Matt. And yes, absolutely. I faced death at such an early age. I literally was given my last rites, Thanksgiving of 95. I. Some people think it's like grim to talk about death. We're all going to die. I know I'm going to die. I know literally <laughs> I, I meet people in our community all day, every day. And we've, we've lost a number of community members. Like I'm faced with knowing no day is guaranteed. And so every day I'm driven to solve problems for our community and to try and reduce their pain, but also knowing like I am so hell bent on, on making Buddy as successful as possible because I always have to think about what's the impact that I'm going to leave, you know, when, when I leave this world. And that fuels me every day. And knowing if, if I don't know if I'm going to have 10 years, 50 years, how can, how can, you know, Buddy really leave a mark on this world? And, I, I think it's the resilience, tenacity, but also like we already hear founders are crazy. I think I'm batshit crazy because I'm so committed to this problem. It's so personal and I love our community so much. And I've heard too many stories over the years that I see a solution that so many people don't see. And yeah, I'm driven to solve it every day, knowing I got a YOLO for our butts. I mean, throwing in a YOLO reference at the end of the episode, <laughs> this might be the best episode we've ever done. And that's all we have for you today, everybody. I cannot wait to bring you more episodes of Chicago Capital in the future. Stay tuned and thank you so much.